Bible and turn to Ephesians. That's where we are, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, as you can see, I gave up uh, the facade of being able to preach multiple verses. We just, we just got down to one verse, Ephesians 1, 6. You know, the thing about this sentence is that uh, this, this verse is 3 through 14. The problem is, as I was telling Aaron in the beginning of the service, it, you keep having to go back and cover the ground you've covered. You had to keep going back because you had to connect it all together. All these thoughts go together. And so uh, we're going to, it may feel like we're preaching four and five and, and six again because I do a lot of repeating. But, uh, but I think it's a, it's a good exercise for us to continue to try to have these things absorb into our minds. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, verse, beginning in verse 3, Praise be to God, the Father and, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will. What was the purpose of God's will? We might ask the text. Verse 6 says, The purpose of his will was that we would praise the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved one. Christ is mentioned again. So, what was the purpose of all of this work prior to the foundation of the world? That we would praise God. That was the purpose. And that offends modern ears a lot of times. Because in our way of thinking, salvation has become about us. And it's a little offensive for God to say, but He says it. Salvation is about me. Primarily. Primarily it's about you, the creature, praising the Creator. And so, so uh, hang with me, okay? Now, I want to do a little introduction here, a little introduction work about what is worship, because that's the subject of our text, isn't it? Praise to the glorious grace of God, who has blessed us with all the glorious grace of God in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. So it's all about worshiping God. That's the reason God has redeemed and saved the elect, so they might praise and worship God. But in our modern world, in our modern church, in the evangelical day today, worship has become one of two things. Either irrelevant. It's become irrelevant. In other words, well, if I feel like going to church today and joining with the people of God, I'll go to church today. If something doesn't come up on my daytime planner that's more important than church today, I'll be there. But if something's more important... Worship is life. We become generalists all of a sudden. Worship is all about my life. Anyway, I can worship God on the couch just like I can worship Him in the pew. I can worship Him in the woods like I can worship Him in the pew. I can lay out and have a devotion around my home table. And, hey, it's just the same. No problems. No worries. Right? You've thought that, haven't you? You can be honest here. I've thought that. I've thought it. We either become generalist or we become very specific. Worship becomes music. 
Worship is that thing we do for, in most churches, 45 minutes or so to kind of give us the good experience because the preacher's going to get up and ruin it. Right? The preacher is going to mess it all up, so we got to do real good at the beginning. Get the people good and entertained, and then they'll want to keep coming back. It's either become very general in our day, or it's become too specific in our day, but worship has become the thing of a war in the church. You've heard that, worship wars, right? They've written books about it. There's TV topics, if you watch Christian TV, about it. If you listen to Christian radio, they talk about it. The worship wars. What is it, what's really being talked about in these worship wars is the wrong thing. The wrong thing. The wrong focus has been taken. Because as one modern uh, leader tells us, uh, and I think wrongly, today's people care less about stodgy old confessions and hymns and more about being met where they are in the pew. So any good leader just does what the people want, right? That's great leadership. But on the other side, we have the crowd that says, I don't care where people are at all. I don't want to lead them anywhere. I just want to hold on to what I'm comfortable with. And we have a war that starts. And unfortunately, it starts in the church. It's an intramural squabble, fight. People get hurt. People leave. People get offended. People offend one another and stay in the church but hate one another. It's all focused around the wrong thing, though, isn't it? It's all about me, my family, what I like. What I don't like, it's not about verse 6 in Ephesians. It's not the fault that, you know, when I wake up any morning, but especially on Sunday morning at my house when I wake up, you say, well, you like Sunday because you get to preach. Partly. I love to preach. But literally, when my eyes pop open, my first thought is, I get to go be with God's people and hold His name high. It's the first thing I think. Literally, my heart leaps to say, it's good to go into the house of the Lord for worship. It's good. Excitement floods my mind as I take a shower and I'm already in the pregame warm-up mode. Right? I mean, I can't wait to get here. Why? Not because of the songs we may choose to sing, nor because of the videos we may choose to watch, nor because the preacher is all that, but because God is all that. But because the one cause is, I have another opportunity to praise His glorious grace. And I don't have to do it today by myself, or just with my family. I get to do it with the community of God's people. It's a beautiful time. So I would like to say to those who are in the middle of the worship war, get out of the worship war. Leave that intramural fight. Stop shooting at one another. And aim towards heaven and worship our glorious God. Worship our glory. Refocus, we might say. Refocus. And what should we focus on? Well, 
That's what this passage is all about. Our, our praise, our praise should be directed to God. That's what verse 6 says. To the praise of His glorious grace. Praise is the correct response of a creature to His Creator. We take our cue, we can take our cue from the created world around us. What does the psalmist say? The creation sings to God. The stars in their orbit sing to the Father. The trees, as the waves of wind pass through their leaves, clap their hands unto God. The creatures praise the Creator. Even in a fallen world, even in this decrepit, fallen, degrading world we live in, it's still, the whole universe hums with praise to God. All of creation. It does it because the praise, you say, well, it's inanimate. Yes, it's inanimate. In other words, it has no spirit. It has no soul. But it is obedient. The sun does what God created the sun to do. Therefore, it praises God. The moon orbits like it should. Therefore, it praises God. The trees stand tall and grow and branch out and wave in the wind the way they were created. So they praise God. All of it is reacting to the situation in perfect fashion, except one created being. What created being? Mankind. And we have sinned. We have rebelled. We have gone our own way. None of us seeks after God. We have all gone out of the path, Paul says, quoting the psalmist. There's poison under our tongues. We have rebelled. We are the enemies of God, Romans 5 says. Not the trees, not the rocks, not the dogs. We. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of all time, in his story on the grace of God, his preaching on the grace of God said, when a dog barks and bites at you, he only does it because he hates rebels against God's cause. That's a new perspective, right? I served under a pastor one time, a brilliant man, who said, when creatures rebel against mankind, they're only trying to help us get in line and worship God. They're angry at us. And though I may not go as far as those statements, I might not, I don't know. They're two brilliant men, hard to argue with. I will say this, Romans 8 tells us that all of creation moans and groans for one reason. Because we sinned and enslaved it to sin. And it doesn't want to be there. We've, we've destroyed the whole thing. And there's one thing that should be coming from our mouths and from our lives. And that is worship directed to God. That's the first thing we need to see in the text. Our worship, our praise... Our, our devotion goes to Him. Also, our praise is a loving response of the children of God. Now we go a little deeper. All men should be praising God. But the reality is that God's children most definitely should be praising Him. Listen, we have a Father who Jesus says, when we ask Him, He loves to give us, give us gifts. Have you ever thought about that? 
Listen, at lunch, when you sit down with your family and the spread is on the table, whether it be in a restaurant or whether it be at your home, wherever you eat or at a friend's home, take just a moment. Skip the prayer even. Challenge your traditionalism. Skip the prayer even. And everyone go around the table and thank God for what has come from His hand through His Son to us that we take for granted. Provision of daily bread. These rote little trite little prayers we pray before we eat, you know, the mechanical ones, we bow our head, oh God, thank you for the food, let's eat. Those things are blasphemous. What we should be saying is praising Him as children to a father. If your dad, it'd be like this, if your dad took his bonus check and out of his grace bought you the finest gift and sat it in front of you, would you simply flip a hand and say, oh, well, thank you. Appreciate that, Dad. On back to regular life. Oh, no. Oh, no. For weeks, for months, that's all you'd want to talk to people about is how good your daddy is. We have that opportunity every day to praise Him. It's the right response from a loving Father's grace to us. Children rightly respond with grace, with praise, with blessing. You know, I was challenged by Seth Terrell in a lot of ways. But one day we were sitting down to eat at Strut's. I don't know if you can thank God for Strut's food. That's, that's part of God's sinfulness, uh, our man's sinfulness, all that grease. But we sat down. We're over this meal. We're eating. And before we eat, I, 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 you know, I, I said, let's, you know, let's pray. And Seth just said this. Why? Why? Okay, because you pray over your food. Did, and then he asked, as only he could, kind of a smart aleck, you know, did you thank God for hot water in your shower this morning? Did you thank God for the clothes you put on your back? Did you stop and pray and thank God for, you get the point? See, our children and the lost world, when they see us praising God over food, real tritely, real traditionally, it almost becomes a blasphemous thing. Because the life of an obedient child to a gracious father is praise and worship all the time. Paul wrote it this way. In Romans 12, he said, Your life is a living, breathing, moving sacrifice. Your whole life. Not mealtime. Not bedtime. All of life. And now I want to bring that down to this level. Because that's general. That's good. That's general. But now let's be specific. So what happens? Go with me here. What happens when 150 gather on Sunday morning whose lives have been worshipped all week? What happens then? When you put 150 pieces of kindling in the same place and throw the match, what happens? Explosion happens. Energy Passion, zeal, all to His praise and His glory of His grace. Creatures praise their Creator and obedient children always, always respond with praise. But also, our praise is of the Father and it is of the Son and it is of the Holy Spirit because He is a triune God. Now I want to look at the text with you. Verses 4 through 6, we could say, is praiseworthy for God's selecting. 
See it? What does he say in verse 4? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we are to praise His glorious grace because He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the blessed one, Jesus Christ. God, we could say, is God the Father is praiseworthy because He has selected us. He has chosen us. We can then say in verses 7 through 12 that Jesus Christ the Son is praiseworthy because He has saved us. Look what it says in verses 7 through 12. I can't wait to get to these verses. In Him... We have redemption. In Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things into unity in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. So we can say with great, humble, passionate worship, we praise God because He selected us. We praise the Son because He has saved us. And we praise the Spirit for He has sealed us under this salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee. When you have a will that's being probated, you must have a guarantee. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the seal of sonship. And so when we join here, we praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, creatures praise their Creator. Obedient children praise their Father and all things should praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where we are in verse 6. Secondly, our praise should be directed to God because He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now, I just ran through the list again, and you keep hearing the list, and hopefully it will sink into all of our minds, the list of spiritual grace gifts that we receive in salvation. We're compelled to praise God because of the work He has accomplished on our behalf in eternity past. Now let's take the text apart again. Look with me. In eternity past, what did God do? He chose us, right? Before the foundation of the world. So we praise Him because He chose us before the foundation of the world. He also, before the world began, predestined us unto sonship through Jesus Christ. Okay? So God, the praise of God comes because of what He has done for us in eternity past. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says that we praise the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Do you get that? What happened in time in about A.D. 30 was done in God's architectural blueprint plan prior to the foundation of the world. Before God created any living, breathing thing, whether it be an angel, a human, or creation, God killed His Son on behalf of the elect. 
He reckoned him and reasoned him dead. And then he created all this. You want to know how magnanimous our God is? How big he is? He has a desire that all things worship and glorify him. And so he creates millions of miles of creation. Millions and millions of miles of universe for one thing. So that he might receive praise from him. More specifically, so that he could save his children. More specifically, that he might, through laying the wrath of his own will against his son, free us from death and from sin. He created all of it for that reason. We got it backwards, don't we, in our day. Science has it backwards. We think all of this is greater than this. And yet God says, when I see the sun, I see a star. Beautiful. But it is not man. Now, I'm not trying to elevate us, but just to show us, don't take pride in yourself. Because listen, if you stay in your sin and refuse his son, you will go to hell. He will crush you. You will be his enemy for eternity. So don't take pride in your flesh. But listen, all the universe is not created so that we can worship it. All the universe is created so that we might worship God through Jesus Christ because of our salvation. That is the stage. And God's grace is being acted out on us. Do you see that? So we praise Him. We praise Him because of what He's done for us in eternity past. But we also praise Him because of what He has done for us in time. Now the transition in time. I'm going to steal a little from coming forthcoming messages. What did He do for us in time? What did He do for us in time? He chose us back here to be holy and blameless in love. And now, through Christ, He is making us holy and blameless. In time we're doing that. He predestined us to be His sons, but in time He regenerated us so that we might be His sons. You see that? In other words, don't ever, ever, ever fall in the error of the primitive Baptists, the hyper-Calvinists. Also, don't ever let somebody label this church hyper-Calvinist. We are not. We are evangelical. We believe in salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, through His Word alone. We believe these things. And it's all by God's grace. What, what, what mistake the hyper-Calvinist makes? They go one step too far. One of their biggest errors is what's known as eternal regeneration. What's that? Well, shortly it means they believe that we are regenerated, made alive, prior to our birth. We are born regenerated. And we live our life with no outward call of the gospel necessary for salvation. No sharing your faith is necessary in that system. No one bows the knee and repents in this life for salvation. They simply realize that they are God's child. Okay? If you've gone to church here more than just the last 15 minutes, we obviously do not believe that. If you think you were born saved... You're still not saved. 
Why? Because you must be regenerated. Titus, the same author, Paul, in Titus tells us that. Look at with me quickly at Titus for what God does in time. Titus is just past 2 Timothy. If you're in Ephesians, you need to go to the right. You'll see Thessalonians, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus. Titus chapter 3 tells us what God does in time. Look what it says. 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. When did He save us? Through the work of Jesus Christ. Not because of works that we did in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay? That happened in time. The pouring out of the Spirit happens in time. I don't know when it happened for you. It might not have happened yet. But when it happens and that Spirit is poured out, your first breath will be faith in God, in Christ. That's what will happen. And you will know you've been regenerated. If you ever call out from your heart in faith, you are regenerate. You cannot call out from your heart in faith unless He makes you alive through His Holy Spirit. Let's look at John chapter 3 because I don't want to hang everything on Paul. You might not trust Paul. I trust him. Maybe you don't. John chapter 3, the gospel. Jesus witnessed to Nicodemus who comes to him saying, I know you're a good man. No one can do these things lest he come from God. Right? He didn't really ask the question. Jesus just answers the question. And I believe it's Nicodemus' heart level question. Nicodemus wants to know, how can I be saved? Jesus knows he wants to know, even before he asks. And so he answers him. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can I be born again? How can I be born? Can I be in my mother's womb again? I'm a grown man. No. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which I take to be the same thing. Water, which is regeneration, which is purification, which comes through the Spirit, according to Titus. Jesus is just saying, it's the water of the Spirit which regenerates you. You can't be born again unless the Spirit does it. You can't do it, Nicodemus. The Spirit does it. Look what he says. Unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what He does in time for us, after He saves us, after He uh, elects us, He saves us. After He predestines us to sonship, He makes us alive so that we can be sons through His Spirit. That happens in time. How does it happen? When does it happen? The wind blows wherever it will. And you don't know where it comes from, neither do you know where it goes. So it is with the work of the Spirit. Wow. So I can't control it. I can't manipulate it. I can't make it happen. I can't make it happen for you. I can't make it happen for me. But when it happens, I know it happens. You know why? Because faith happens. The first thing that comes from the heart of a regenerate person is faith in Jesus Christ. And so He worked for us in eternity, and He's working for us in time. So we praise Him because of this. 
because he's blessed us with all spiritual blessing. Also, our praise goes to him because we have received all spiritual blessings through God's beloved one. If you look in verse uh, uh, 6, it says, we, what was the purpose of all of this work of salvation? It was to the praise of his glorious grace, right, with which we have been blessed in the beloved one. Now, here we have a decision to make. Are we the beloved or is Christ the beloved? Both and. Christ is the beloved one. We are beloved. We are loved in Him. Don't ever get it wrong. Don't ever miss the point. You and I are not savable in ourselves. We are not lovely in ourselves. We are enemies. We are rebels. We are sinners. We are the, the most despicable of all of God's creatures in our natural flesh. Jesus Christ is beloved. Jesus Christ is honorable. Jesus Christ is lovely. Jesus Christ is wealthy and rich beyond all of our imagination. All of it is His. And, and because we have moved from the first Adam's column of sinful rebellion and God has brought us under the column of the second Adam, His Son, we are beloved. In all of eternity, when we stand in front of the throne of God in worship of Him, and when we do our jobs and our tasks, and I don't know, people ask, what are you going to do in eternity? We're going to work. What kind of work? I don't like work. Well, you better start liking it. Eternity is about work. We're going to labor. We're going to work. We're going to build things. It's going to go on forever. It's, it's marvelous. It's unbelievable. But while we're doing it, our hearts there will sing to His grace because we are in Christ. Not because we are lovable, but because He is lovable and we are in Him. And so when anyone comes to you on the streets of eternity in the new world and says, Why are you here? How did you get in? Oh, Christ got me in. Let me tell you about Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. And so... He's the beloved one. Now let's look at the text because I want to prove this from the text and from the Scriptures because it is difficult. If we think of the beloved one, first of all, we must think of an Old Testament phrase which is used often in the Old Testament and it refers to several things in the Old Testament. It refers to Israel. I'll just do a few here. Israel in Hosea 3.1 is called the beloved ones. Israel is. God loves Israel. And he calls them beloved, or cherished, or loved. But in the New Testament, we see this used sparingly, and it is never a title of Christ except for in this passage. Everywhere else we see it, and we see it in just a few places, but everywhere else we see it, we see it as a, a, a statement about humans, about beloving them, except in the Gospels. And I say that because if you look at the epistles, they all talk about the church being beloved. But in the, in the Gospels, we find the root. <clears throat> the root is that Jesus is the beloved one. If we look at Matthew 3, verse 17. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew 3, verse 17. You need a Bible when you come here. We, we, we stay in it. We try to. Matthew 3:17 we see this God from heaven at Christ's baptism saying this very thing this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. So we see that. And it's the same story in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. Right? Now, look with me at Matthew 17. Turn to Matthew 17. Verse 5. <coughs> at the transfiguration of Christ, Moses and Elijah come. Peter gets caught up in the moment and says, Let's build three tents of worship. One to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to Jesus. And then the Father speaks. And He says, From the cloud, This talking about Christ, is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This is the title of God for His Son, Jesus. And we find it also in the parallel passages of Mark 9-7 and Luke 9-35. Look at 2 Peter with me, verses one, I mean chapter 1, verse 17, to see that the disciples picked up on this title. They picked up on God calling Him the Beloved. And they begin to do it also. In recounting the story that we've just seen, in, in recounting the story in which we've just looked at in the Gospels, he includes, Peter does, this quote. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So, he quotes this title, Beloved Son. And I think Paul has done the same thing here. He has said, this is the Beloved One, Christ is beloved. And so, we have our status as the beloved in Christ. Whenever God looks at us, He sees His Son because the great transaction has happened. As Pastor, and however he says his name, Anawalbi, that's probably murderous, but maybe he's not listening today. He looks through His Son, the prism of of His Son, and He sees us in Him. The transaction has taken place. Our sin to Him, His righteousness to us. We are now counted in Him righteous. And so we too are called beloved. We too receive blessings as the beloved one. God has elected us and predestined us in Christ. God has sanctified us and adopted us in Christ. God is sanctifying us progressively, bringing sanctification into this life, in our lives, making us holy in this life, in and through Christ. Okay? Now, I want to end with two things. Some examples from the Bible. An example from the Bible of, of, of people who praise God. Now listen. All I've said you may be nodding your heads to in agreement. I don't think anybody here would disagree with what I've said today. Where the trouble comes is when life throws us to the wolves. That's where the trouble comes. You say, I'm willing to praise God 
except, and you fill in the blank. Except when I'm sick, except when financial struggles hit, except divorce, except in death, except in these things. I'm willing to praise God, just as you've talked about, except when life happens like this. And the problem is, that happens all the time, doesn't it? If your worship of God, and this is what I think happens in our, in our gatherings of worship, our worship is predicated on what we feel like and what we want. Some of you worship really well when we have a full presentation from the stage. Instruments, voices, and all that. And some of you don't. And some of you worship well when it's just Dave singing. And some of you don't. And both sets of people are wrong. Wrong. Sinful. It's not worship. It's entertainment. Some of us worship really well when the sun is shining. And some of us worship awful when it's storming. And both are wrong and sinful. Some of us worship really well when our wives were kind to us yesterday and last night. Some of us worship awfully when the reverse happens. And both are wrong. Both are sinful. Why? Because they are predicated on the way you feel. The way I feel. They have nothing to do with verse 6. Because in all of those conditions, God is still God. And the reason I stress those simplistic things is because if those simplistic things get under our skin and stop worship... God forbid our child die or we get cancer. God forbid it. We will jettison the faith in those days. God forbid this government turn on Christianity. It can happen. Where would we be? If we were affected in our worship in such simplistic ways, what happens when the big things begin to happen all around us? That's what I'm saying. And so I want to take us to the Bible, to a man in the Old Testament who was not affected by his outward situation, either good or bad. Look at Job. Some of you knew I was headed there, didn't you? Oh, Job. Job is said to be a righteous man at the beginning of the chapter. One. He is said to worship God in festival celebration continually. He is wealthy. He is rich. But is that why he's worshiping God? That becomes the question in chapter 1, verse 6. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came, and they presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now he's mocking God. 
How do I know he's mocking God? Because what do the eyes of the Lord do? They go throughout the earth. Up and down. This rebel is mocking God in his very presence. Oh, I've been playing God here lately. The Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. So the test comes, right? Right here. Why is Job praising God? Because he has a good life situation? He likes all the things that are going on in his current status? Or, verse 6, because of the eternal work of God on his behalf in Christ. Why is Job worshiping God? Because Job understands that God is the Redeemer or because... He has been blessed. Well, God says, okay, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let me stick a stick of dynamite in the theology that says good comes from God and evil comes from Satan. It needs to be blown up and exposed as an emperor with no clothes. That theology is not biblical. What we read here is a full face to front and attack on that. Because Satan comes and he doesn't mention Job. God mentions Job. God stuck Job out. And said, what about Job? You who would play God and go to and fro on the earth, up and down, and see all of what's in men's heart? What about Job? Oh, yeah, God. He's a great trophy, isn't he? Boy, you should be proud of him. You've put him in his own trophy case. He has a bubble around him. No one can touch him. Oh, yeah, he praises you. But if he loses all he has, then what? What does God say? Go and take everything he has, but don't touch him personally. So what happens? All of Job's livestock are taken. His houses are destroyed. His children are killed. And he gets these reports in successive order, one right after another. And what is Job doing when all of this happens but praying on his face before God that God would protect his children? And then he gets a report, your children are dead. If little things in life affect your worship, if verse 6 is not the reason you are worshiping God, when that report comes, you will not worship him. But if he, that is the reason, if he is the reason for your worship, then listen to the response. 
after gaining this knowledge from his servants, the worst news any man could receive. Your livelihood's gone, your family's gone. It's all gone, Job, in one day, in a span of a couple hours. Job then, having heard this news, rose up, tore his robe, shaved his head. It's at this point that Satan knew he was in trouble. Now you read that and think, oh, here he goes, he's going to curse God. But I know Satan knew when he shaved his head, he knew. This guy's for real. He's not worshiping God because of gifts. He's worshiping God because God is God. Look what he does. He shaves his head and he falls on the ground in worship. Why did God save us? So we might praise His glorious grace. And grace in Job's life in that day was that everything he had was taken away except his election. Except his position in Christ. Everything else was gone. And he worshipped God. Now we know the character that God has created in Job. Now we see what was inside. You say, when that day comes, oh, I'll be tough, I'll bow up, I'll grow up, I'll be strong. No. In the day of affliction, what is inside will come out. If it is a worshiper of God, it will come out. If it is a man who, or woman who is basing life around their feelings and their livelihood and their family, that will come out. Affliction doesn't create strong saints. Affliction exposes strong saints. That's what I'm saying. So, he did this and then he goes further and says, I came from my mother with nothing and I'm going to go back into the ground with nothing. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrongdoing. Wait a minute. I thought Satan took all his stuff. Satan is a secondary cause. When I talked with you several weeks ago about my testimony, I'm, pre- I'm a very appreciative about s- some of your tenderness towards me over those things. Those horrible things that happened to me. But listen, all of those things happening to me happened through secondary causes. I cannot charge God with sin in any of those events. Neither is Job charging God with sin when everything's taken away. But I can and I should. And it is only right that I praise God for what others have done because it is only because God has allowed it, permitted it, planned it, directed it, however you want to say it. I say He ordained it. That's the way I phrase it, like the old saints of old. God ordained that Job lose it all, and Job praised God, not Satan. He won't even mention Satan in his praise. Not here and not later. He never mentions it. That is an example of a person who gets the concept of what I'm trying to teach you in Ephesians 1.6. Our praise is the fulfillment of God's purpose because He has worked on our behalf and given us His glorious grace. That's what our praise is. Paul also is a good example. We have Paul, this great saint, who wrote what we're reading, and his life reads as a who's who of persecution. Shipwrecked, beaten, abused, starved, stoned, imprisoned. All of these things are just, that's just life for Job. I mean, for Paul. 
And yet, he boasts in the cross. And yet, he says, I'm praising God because of his work for me in eternity. I'm saying that in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, we find the secret. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Who are these witnesses? They're the faithful ones who've gone before us, who did not base their lives around feel-goodism, nor about their likes and dislikes, nor about whether trials are coming or trials are going. They based their life on Christ. And they found glorious joy in Christ. That's the cloud of witnesses. And they are watching the playing field of the earth. They're watching it. And since we are surrounded by them, let us then lay away every weight and every sin that clings so closely to us. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is the ultimate person to emulate in this regard for the joy that was set before Him. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and now He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So we have Job, and we have Paul, and ultimately we have Christ to show us that no matter what's going on in life, praise should never stop flowing from us to Him. Okay? But we not only have the Word of God, because you and I may say these people are superhuman. They're in the Bible. Sure, they do the right things, right? Although we know that's not really true. So I give you a person in history. One more example from history. And I've chosen it very well, very carefully, very strategically. I did not choose a person whose life was great. I've chosen a life that was very difficult. I've not chosen a life that ends like Job's with all the gifts back to him. I've chosen a life of a man who died in 1800 in utter and complete despair. In depression. I've chosen as my example of Ephesians 1.6, William Cooper. William Cooper was born in 1763. And he lived, <clears throat> he lived until 1800. When he, he makes him a contemporary of George Whitfield. It makes him a contemporary of John Wesley. Okay. Excuse me, not 1723. I made him real young. 1723 to 1800. It made him a contemporary with these great saints. And not many people know who William Cooper was. William Cooper was a man who was depressed from very early in his life, had a spirit of what John Newton called melancholy. And every January, on 10-year cycles, he fell into Great Depression that would last for weeks and months, and at times in his life, for a full year. He stayed in utter depression, locked away in the dark, not talking to anyone, in despair. When he... <clears throat> was 27, his dad elevated him to the position of debtor's court lawyer, basically, for the king of England. 
That's a great position to put somebody who's, who's depressed, isn't it? Put them in a job where everybody that comes before them is depressed. I don't know what his dad was thinking. He probably was trying to help him, okay? It didn't help him. It drove him to insanity. It drove him to insanity. He was locked away in 1763 in St. Albans Insane Asylum. He was under the care of one doctor, Nathaniel Cotton. Cotton loved him and preached the gospel to him. Listen to this. While Cooper was there, he had been there just a small time. He believed he was damned without hope in this world. Six months into his care, he found a Bible. Lying, not by accident, but placed by Nathaniel Cotton on a bench. And he picked it up. He found the Bible on a bench, and he opened it to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. And he knew nothing of the Bible, but he found the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And he begins to read. And he saw so much benevolence, so much mercy, so much goodness, so much sympathy with this miserable man Lazarus in the Savior's conduct that I almost heard tears upon the relation of the story. Little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of this moment extending towards myself. He read the story and saw all this goodness, all this mercy, all this grace, but he never thought it was coming to him. I sighed and said, oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer, that I had not glorified all his favors. And my heart was softened, though not yet enlightened. Increasingly, he fell under conviction, doom. And he found Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in Christ's blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This is what he says when he read that verse. Immediately, I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend had said to me long before, revived in all its clearness, with demonstration of the Spirit and power, unless the Almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with this love. How do you go from depressed manic to praising God's glorious grace? Verse 6. Understanding that God chose us. Understanding that God predestined us. Understanding that He chose us unto salvation and predestined us unto adoption causes children to praise their Father. That's the basis of praise. That's it. As I said, I'd like to tell you it ended perfectly for Him from this moment forward, but it didn't. He continued in cycles of depression. John Newton encouraged him to write, and they wrote the only hymns, of which he only was able to write 68 hymns. You don't know most of them. I don't know most of them. But we know a few of them. This is one, and it is my favorite hymn. 
God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of lever failing skill, he treasures up his brightest bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread. Are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides His smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. That came from the heart and the pen of a man who was in utter despair. Why? Because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because he predestined us unto adoption as sons. In Christ. So that we would be holy and blameless in love. He elected us. And so that we would be His children. He adopted us. And what was His purpose? That we might praise His glorious grace. No matter the circumstances. No matter the struggle. We worship Him. We praise Him. And so the question is here. The application is here. Will you, will I, will we praise Him? I don't know what you're facing. Some of your dreams have been crushed. Some of your livelihoods are evaporating. Some of your children are sick. Some of your spouses are uncertain in the future. Their health. I I I can't answer your individual questions about your situation. I don't know how it will end. I don't pretend to tell you that it's all going to be wrapped up neatly with a bow on top and it's going to be great. Some of you in this room may slip into a depression that lasts the rest of your days and you die in despair, in fear. I don't know what will happen in your individual life. But I know what God has done on your behalf. And so that's why I'm asking you, will you praise Him? I also cannot answer for you. I cannot answer for you. My prayer is that you will. That in the struggle, in the depths of the darkest hours, you will fall on your face and worship the living God. And the only hope you have to do that is to understand these eternal truths. To grasp them and to hold on to them as dear. That's the only hope you have. And so I believe God's winnowing hand has come against us before and it will again at this church. I believe that. If you're visiting with us today, I'll tell you up front. It's dangerous to take God at His word. In the world's estimation, it's foolish. 
but talk to the testimonies in this room who have been sifted like sand, and yet our Lord prayed for them. Talk to the testimonies in this room who have faced death and never flinched. The spouses who have lost their loved ones and never given up hope in Christ. Talk to those who have suffered much. And then see the glorious grace of God. Yet though He slay me, I will praise Him. Some of you have that testimony. And I want to thank you. You are a light to us. I was with Helen Robinson this week. As a light. Thank you. I was with Dave Swinney this week. There's a beaming light of hope. Thank you. I was with so many of you who struggle with your children who are not Christians and you have not given up hope. Thank you. Thank you. Your testimony is being joined to the testimony of the cloud of witnesses that our God is greater. Our God is bigger. Our God is stronger than all this world has to offer. Thank you. And for those who have not suffered yet, brace yourself with the truth of God and prepare for the day of suffering because everyone who enters this kingdom suffers. Everyone without exception suffers. Be ready. Stand firm in that day on the rock of your salvation. I'm going to call you now to his fellowship. It's the way we will end the service. We're not going to have announcements at the end. We don't have anything more important than this. We're going to take the supper and then we're going to dismiss. And you can treat this as a call. A call to renewal. A call to communion. A call to feast with Him in the valley of the shadow of death. That's what it is. We're in the valley of the shadow of death.